0: Thought-leading insights on data and analytics in the healthcare space. This is Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. Well, Dr. Conard, thanks so much for being here today. And I know our audience is really excited to hear your perspective on the current COVID pandemic, as well as kind of what we can learn from it moving forward. Why don't we start with just a brief introduction? Um, Would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and your current role?
1: I'd be happy to. You know, there are basically three things, I think, that that might be of interest to the people listening today. First of all is that I'm a clinician. I'm a family doctor, a primary care trained at UT Southwestern and University of South Florida and been in practice for 33 years. I uh, was an associate clinical professor at UT Southwestern for 21 years. So that's the first thing is I've got a very clinical background. The second thing is that I've been very involved in research and I love, I'm a data geek. And so I've been the principal investigator in 62 clinical trials, but also have done a lot of work with uh, corporations and population health, ACOs, integrated delivery networks on looking at data and how data can uh, lead to wisdom and really can help us understand things that would be valuable, uh, actions to be valuable, leading indicators, not just lagging indicators for uh, that call us into action to help people live longer, better lives. And I guess the third thing it, that might be of interest is that I work with corporations. So I still practice medicine. Let me just get that out of the way. But I work with corporations and I have approximately um, well, two brokerage firms, which one of them has a couple hundred and one of them has over 500 significant firms, significant being 150 plus lives, and then also directly with many, many major corporations. So I'm actually taking the clinical knowledge and the population health knowledge, the data, and and using that to inform plan benefit design, value-based plan benefit design, and effective efficacy studies on both vendors that a company might have and say primary care, primary care utilization, those type of things.
0: Awesome. So um, I'm excited for folks to just get to hear that because I think you have a really unique and, and diverse perspective just given some of the, the different roles that you currently play as well as have played in the past. In particular, I was excited to, to really pick your brain a little bit on the data side, just knowing how much you love information and how you feel like things really start and end with having the right data and information to make the right decisions Given that and thinking about the current pandemic, um, what would you say are the the things you're advising folks as you talk to them or the things you personally are focused on in terms of the data we should be looking at and and how we should be analyzing kind of A, our efficacy in terms of response to this pandemic, and B, the go-forward data we should be leveraging to really make decisions in in the broader healthcare industry
1: so first of all let me make it very very clear that i'm not a lawyer i am not a hipaa you know expert i'm not a ada american disabilities uh, expert uh, you know any of those governing organizations i am not an expert and i work with very high quality professionals that determine what uh, is able to be done and what is not. I'm more the idealist. I'm the clinician. I'm the person who can put together the the mosaic of what would be ideal in, turning, in terms of, of helping employees and their family members uh, stay safe and, and stay at work very productive. Uh, every time I come up with a litany of things I think we should do, uh, many of them are, uh, we have to do a lot of work. So just really want to start off to say that there are many Legal implications to the conversation we're going to have, and please, no one take this as, oh, Scott said it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a big mistake, right? right? Um, and whether that's uh, antibody testing or uh, looking at people with chronic conditions to see when they should return to work, those are both two examples of things that are not able to be shared with corporations freely, and you have to do a lot of work to make sure you can. So that, yeah. said, that was good. That now that I've got that off the table, uh, let's talk about um, you know the present pandemic, uh, COVID pandemic, and what, what would have been helpful? What is helpful? And what does this really say about our healthcare system? Because I think that as Wayne Jonas, Dr. Wayne Jonas, who wrote the book, How Healing Works, has pointed out, being healthy, being well, is much more than having access to a doctor. It is really self-care, how well you take care of yourself. It is the socio uh, the The social determinants of health play a huge role, and then of course it's the healthcare system and how you're able to interact with that, given the plan benefit design and plan the value base or lack of value base to what you've got. So the beautiful thing about data um, today uh, is that you can get so many answers to so many of these issues, and you can see how people are responding to things, how they're acting, how they're behaving. Now, I'll grant you that often it's a month behind or six weeks behind. So, for the sake of our conversation today, I'm going to talk as though it was real time. And in some companies, we actually have been able to get it so that it is close to real time, uh, where, say, a TPA is able to send over data every night. But- um, so so I'm speaking a teeny bit idealistically for the average company. But in either case, there's no question that when you look at what you can derive from data, it's you can look at the high-risk groups. You can look at the people who are able to safely, uh, from a demographic and medical, clinical standpoint, return to work and, and who can't. You can look at who's been tested and who hasn't been tested. And you get an idea of when people uh, get symptoms, where do they go? And do they have a relationship with primary care or do they not? Are they using telemedicine more or are they not? There's just a litany of very important questions that can be answered. And from the behavior that we see in the data and from the actions and results we see in the data, it gives us a tremendous insight into how well is that company's plan benefit design working? How well is their strategy working? If something... uh, like the COVID pandemic comes up, are people able to access care? Do they know what to do? Or are they going the wrong place for care? So for me, the the presence or absence of data is the, de- the primary determinant factor in being able to see how effectively, well, and uh, and comprehensively, the company's benefits are working, or if they're not. And from a clinical standpoint, whether people are are doing what they can to be well taken care of or not. And from that, of course, you end up with a whole series of questions and actions that one could take.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So as you're advising folks, what types of data in the day-to-day do you think, kind of healthcare organizations, Employ as well as employers should be looking at to understand what do we ramp up? What do we ramp down? What did we do well? What maybe do we need to continue to focus on?
1: Every company has a primary care strategy. Most don't know it, and most don't know what theirs is. So hmm. for me, the foundation becomes primary care. And are people actually uh, getting? preventive services? are they do they know their numbers? If like you know I play a game when I look at data sometimes. If we look at a thousand company, um, a thousand employee company and the average age is 46 years old and uh, you know whatever 50, 50, male, female, et cetera, et cetera, and you go through and you say how many colon cancers, breast cancers, um, not prostate so much because they're young. But you know, what's the likelihood we have a cervical cancer and an atrial cancer or any of the other diseases? And you, you, you go looking in the data to see if you have that. What percentage of people should have hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol based on demographics? And what you very quickly realize is that there's a huge underdiagnosed population. There's a lot of people. In fact, one company we went through is a larger company, and you know, with the incidence of cancer being eight percent and adults and so forth, we went through and did the analysis, and there were 500 people in their company that that at this moment, given their age and gender and things, very well may have cancer, and that were not diagnosed. So we started a campaign called Find the 500, and we actually. Um, went out and educated, raised the health literacy of the population and found several stage one, stage two cancers, um, some very severe like colon cancer, like endometrial cancer, like breast cancer. Others, uh, we actually, you know, randomly found some uh, non-Hopkins lymphoma and uh, leukemia and things. But the the, the point is that given what we know about populations today, if you have a a good sized corporation, you should have a, pretty good feel for what is in your data and what kind of diseases, conditions, common conditions um, are being managed or not. And then what happens, of course, is they're not. It's grossly understated. So then you say, well, I wonder who has it that we don't know about. And this is where some of the AI and machine learning stuff can be very valuable. You can go figure out who's a high likelihood of having those problems. Because as I say to my companies that I get the honor of serving continually is, the, it, it, I can't tell you which of the 5% of your population is going to lead to your 50% spent or 8% is going to lead to the 80% spent. I don't know that. But what I can tell you is what are the 20% that you're in all likelihood going to have your next 5 to 8% come out of. So you don't have to aggressively put proactive uh, health literacy improving and Uh, primary care, high quality primary care engaging strategies in place for everybody. But for this 20%, if you don't, you're going to be paying for it in the next three to five years.
0: Do you think the pandemic creates more urgency for employers in particular to understand their, their populations with chronic conditions, comorbid conditions, and make sure those conditions are being well-managed?
1: I think that corporations are very conflicted. They're really struggling to figure out where does the appropriate amount of support and encouragement end, and where does it become invasive to their employees? So I think I would state what you just said, as I think companies are appreciating how important it is that they have a vendor or they have somebody that is supporting and um, educating their employees so that their employees know where they are on the health or illness continuum. So I think that uh, that many of them are very nervous about knowing too much about employees or what they can do with that information. But I think this pandemic has raised, uh, you know, for instance, in corporations where we had access to a lot of that information, um, and you know what was going on, there, the companies that had that were able to um, really act quickly to support people or to make sure that uh, you know here's an office where they have a significant number of people with chronic multiple chronic conditions and so forth. They need to work from home right now. Here's another group over here that are young, active, at more athletic people that are out on a work site kind of things that, that you can manage differently. And so you could never discriminate against people based on their conditions. That would be an ADA violation. I've learned that. But what you can do is take every precaution to support your employees that do have higher risk and give the employees choice about what they do or what they don't do. So I believe that what the pandemic has done is helped corporations realize that they're very able, they're in a significant leverage point to support their employees and their family members, adding years to their life and life to their years by empowering them to take control of their health, which is my personal mission statement in life. And so I have never had my phone ring more than in the last uh, six weeks. And we're right now in the beginning of May, um, as companies say, help we've had a kind of an actuarial insurance broker relationship. And what we've realized is that we need much more of a clinical and uh, proactive approach to supporting our people when things like this happen. And what they're going to discover on the backside is, and in general, because we can do so much for people uh, as the data leads to wisdom and insight about what's possible.
0: That's really, I think it's a really interesting way to look at it and in some ways kind of finding the silver lining for sure. Um, So consumerism in healthcare has clearly been a consistent trend over the last, I don't know, five plus years. And I think some of what you're talking about is really um, kind of in that same vein What do you think um, employers can do and and consumers, frankly, themselves can do to be better informed and more in control, um, not only of chronic condition management, but when situations like a COVID uh, arise?
1: Well, first of all, you've got to be able to assess risk then you've got to be able to communicate with your folks. Then you've got to be able to guide them through the healthcare system effectively. And so just in those three things, there's a whole litany of 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 changes that most companies would want to make. So first of all, how would you predict risk? How would you figure out um, how much COVID might affect your population? I've been a part of working with several corporations where we literally did a risk corporate risk assessment by getting into the data and saying, how many high-risk people do we have? Geographically, as it rolled across the United States in different areas, and the incidents went from zero per 10,000 to sometimes 200 per 10,000, we could look at the number of people they had in the geographic area and see what's happening. And they could focus their efforts. You can't do everything for everybody. All the time, usually, so they could focus their efforts on really rolling out robust support and guidance programs for those areas that are um, and at risk. Then we have the communication. Well, how do you communicate with folks? Most companies don't even have a working email uh, or cell phone. I mean, it's a miracle. It's 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 remarkable to me that you would actually pay ten thousand dollars a year for a person to have your insurance, and you would not even be able to communicate with them. So having some platform for communication. Uh, the one I like the most is called the My Personal Health Assistant Program, where um, it's not the company communicating, but the the individuals inside the company have a personal concierge that they can reach out to about any question they have about benefits or the, the, the system, health, how to use the healthcare system, health literacy, things like that. So. You know, I think that the companies are discovering that, A, they've got to be able to understand the risk and be able to act uh, strategically because it's too expensive and too cumbersome to do everything for everybody all the time. Two is you got to have a way to communicate really clearly what is going on. And three, you've got to have benefits that actually work. And and I know that's silly, but to even say, but with the social determinants of health, what many, many companies have done is designed fantastic benefits for their C suite. But when it comes to the line worker that's making anywhere from fifty to eighty thousand dollars a year, and that's being generous, many companies it's thirty or twenty-five to eighty thousand dollars a year, there's not a chance in heck they could ever use their benefits. They just don't have the money and it would bankrupt them. So The third thing, and again, this is where data can give you a clear indication of whether people understand and are engaging, is do you actually have a plant benefit design that would work? And I think, again, the data leads to wisdom and you can see the behavior in that. And uh, something like COVID really brings out that last group because they do nothing, they don't understand things their health literacy is relatively low. The company has no way to communica- com- communicate with them in general, let alone if they happen to be at increased risk. And then they don't do anything until they get very sick. Then they land in the emergency room and the company has a you know, $215,000 30 days on a respirator bill. And if that person had understood and been able to be communicated with early, that all could have been avoided. So, you know, this really calls out what's possible on one hand and what corporations actually have the ability to execute on, on the other.
0: Mm, yep. I'm curious if you've heard, so, you know, most companies, not all that you advise probably have largely moved to a remote working environment. Clearly what's going on in hospitals is that elective surgeries have been postponed or delayed, Are you hearing from employers that they are trying to figure out what is our strategy to help our employees kind of reschedule those procedures, get the care they need? How do we get our employees to feel like we're still supporting them in that, even as we're less physically together on a regular basis? I'm I'm curious if, if that theme is coming up in some of the conversations you've been having.
1: It is absolutely coming up on almost every conversation. And you're exactly right. You end up with a, a spectrum of corporations in terms of some of them say, gosh, we have no way to communicate and really reach people. We, you know, we, we, th- we throw a meeting, you know, whatever, open enrollment and, uh, and, or a team meeting or a group meeting and we communicate. We don't have that now. And we don't have working emails or cell phone numbers and the home phone numbers um, are spotty. So we literally almost don't have a way to communicate with our staff. And, um, and what do we do, right? So that you get that extreme, and then you get the other extreme, where you have companies that um, have very effective systems. Again, like kind of like the My PHA thing I was talking about, where they've got everybody's cell phone, everybody email, they and they're able to, if they see something they want to do, they literally just create a campaign. They go out, the third party engages and shares that with people, and they're able to be very athletic in what they're able to do. So you know. Mm companies that I've been working with range. There's a spectrum. Um, we And many of them are companies that were not able to discontinue their services or they were not able to have people work from home. Uh, so whether it's police and fire or uh, trucking companies or food manufacturing companies, hospitals, physicians' offices, you know, in working with all of them, uh, we've had to Of fight our way through this one step at a time, and that's both from a prevention standpoint as well as a what do we do. Um, Had one of my companies that I work with yesterday call me that in one particular city in the United States, they had nine people test positive for COVID. I have another company where we had 140 of 300 employees test positive, and wow, uh, yeah, and had literally had to shut the company down. So, you know, it's all over the board. But in general, mm. what you see is that um, this, this crisis is really pointing out to us how important it is to have data and have information and have uh, thought through and have communication, the ability to communicate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's so interesting to think about, but you're right. I mean, it's almost like a, in the flip of a switch – the way we may have interacted with our employees um, completely changed and not every company had the foresight to make sure that there was a new plan for communication in place. So, you know, how do you make sure as a company that not only you have the right information to understand what is going on from a health perspective with your employee population, but also the means to then communicate to them Effectively to get them what they need.
1: It's very interesting to me because the social determinants of health has been kind of this abstract concept I hear people talking about, and it's like, I'm not quite sure what to do about that, right? It's like over there. And, you um, know, I was over here trying to work through a lot of very practical things. It's amazing to me how this crisis has really brought to the forefront the Importance of that, like, for instance, some quick examples. Um, One of the clients I'm working with, um, they have a bunch of people who many of them have family that are not in the United States that they send money back to. So you'll get six people living in a two bedroom apartment and then five of them will get into a car or, you know, four of them will get into one car, maybe all six, who knows, will get into a car and drive to work. And then after work, they'll go back out in the car and they'll go over and they'll buy dinner and they'll go to a park somewhere and they'll sit on a park bench and drink a couple beers and, you know, mess around, play a little soccer, maybe or uh, throw a baseball, football and um, drink beer together. Well, and then what happens is, uh, you know, and, and there may not just be six of them. It may be, you know, five of the apartments in this place have the same kind of situation. So now all of a sudden at work, you have 30 positive COVID cases and the company gets called out and they're told you're a horrible place you didn't take precautions you didn't help your people and oh my gosh maybe one of those people ends up in the icu or on a respirator or horrific horrifically even dies and so now the company's on the front page of the paper going but 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 you know we 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 socially distanced we had people clean their hands we had people wear face masks and shields we i mean we did everything we're so sorry this happened and you know the plaintiff's attorneys are going you're just a horrible capitalistic con- company that's taking advantage of and killing your employees. And it's just, oh my gosh. And you really get, for the first time for me, the social determinants of health start to become real. Now, it's not to say that I have an answer about what we do about it, but I will say that I get now how how healthy people have been in COVID is as much determined by what they do outside of the eight hours they work as inside, and particularly when they're at home all the time in um, trying to work from home and things, that's just another example of whatever their social conditions are, whatever resources they have access to. Uh, however they perceive they can use their insurance health insurance or the health insurance is too expensive to use. All those things just, excuse me, all of those things just become magnified. And in the data, while uh, you know a, a zip code is not granular enough data, um, maybe a, a zip code plus four starts to get better, um, or maybe you look at the income levels. Because the other thing that uh-huh. we've, done, as we've done data analytics is people making, you know, when you get from from eight dollars to eighteen dollars, there's one set of behaviors, and from twenty dollars to, you know, forty dollars is a second set of behaviors, and forty dollars forty one plus is a third. Now I'm not really making; those are not real numbers. I'm just giving an example of as you start to look at what you're doing in your company in terms of culture and uh, health benefits and things, um, there's a lot of wealth of, of data that you can look at if you're willing to be a bit innovative and really take into consideration key variables that make a difference in how well and, and how successfully people utilize their their healthcare system and their health and you know access things that improve their health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is super interesting because you know, those of us in the industry have been talking about equity of care and social determinants for a, a number of years now, but I, I think it is, it's been enlightening to see how this pandemic has really brought that dialogue into the mainstream. Um, it's the first time I've ever really heard the news media on a broad scale talk about, you know, social determinants and and things like that and underlying conditions and, um I think it will hopefully spurn more funding, more awareness. You know, there's been some really interesting studies done over the last year or two about how 15, only 15% of a person's overall health and well-being is directly account is directly a result of their health care, you know, and the and or the health care they receive when they have an acute issue. Everything yep. else from housing insecurity, transportation insecurity, food insecurity, loneliness, you know, all of the those things contribute to the likelihood of a serious health event um, in, in so many ways. So I think those are the things that I hope this will improve not only a, employers' awareness and understanding and need to think more broadly about the health of their employee population outside of just do they have an acute issue they've been treated for, right? Which we all know is kind of a very, very narrow definition of health. Um, And to start to think creatively about how they can inflect those things. Because you have seen a lot of wellness programs, which we all know generally have not taken hold within the populations that they need to, But what you haven't totally seen yet, I think, is employers recognizing things like how do we connect our employees with food banks? How do we connect our employees with affordable housing? How do we um, maybe give our employees stipends for transportation? You know, I, I hope that we will see a broader view of employee health and employee benefit design than just do we have the right provider network when, and do we have the right coverage when an employee gets sick?
1: It doesn't have to be hard. You could take people right. that make less than, you know, so take make, people that make $50,000 or less or take people that are single parents that make less than $40,000 or less or, or just pick it, pick your metric, go to your uh-huh. database and then uh-huh. ask the question, um, how, what's the likelihood that they have $1,000 in cash or $1,500 in cash that they could spend on common healthcare needs? I mean, and this, the answer to the question is probably zero, but let's say it's 5%, 10%. And then look at your health benefit design and say, for the average person that has to go to a doctor twice in a year and, you know, maybe has to have uh, one uh, intervention, like one, whether it's a gallbladder yeah. or, you know, it, that would cost $2,000. Um, and if that happens to to of your population, what would the effect be on these people? And within about a New York minute, you realize our plan benefits are terrible. It it doesn't, you don't have to make this hard. You could just, you know, just start with that population and ask the question, how do you, how do you develop plan benefit design to support them? That is affordable and reasonable, and that's what where I'm at in my life right now is. You know, you've got chronic diseases. You've got people with multiple chronic diseases on multiple medications with multiple doctors, um, and it's becoming increasingly common as, as you get people into their 40s and 50s and 60s. It just is the rule, not the exception. Okay, so how do we find high quality primary care? You asked me what I see key metrics people need to look at. Are people getting high quality primary care? How do you tell that? Well, I have 21 variables I look at, but amongst them are. Um, the uh, prevalence and incidence, uh, prevalence just as we look over a period of time, of emergency room visits, of specialist visits, of hospitalizations, of inappropriate use of emergency room, of inappropriate—I no, say inappropriate—that's that's a too strong a word. It's more, um, uh, you know, examples of emergency rooms and hospitals that probably could have been handled outside of the emergency room and hospital. There's a. Term for that that I'm not thinking of right now, but you you understand what I'm saying. Um, you look at those things. You look at the preventive testing people are getting. You look at whether people with five medications and three chronic diseases are seeing the primary care doctor at least twice, if not three or more times per year. Just really simple metrics, and what you get really quickly is that there are people who are getting fantastic care in the United States, and many who are getting no care or suboptimal care. And then you ask the quick question, well. You know, when the people who are getting suboptimal care end up in the emergency, getting hospitalized or having to have a procedure or going to an unscrupulous specialist who's going to do something that didn't need to be done, what does that cost me? And how much would it cost for me to actually take that 20% of my population that I'm talking about right now and get them high quality primary care? And all of a sudden, through the data, you discover that. Uh, an on-site, near-site clinic, or a advanced-slash-direct primary care contract where you're handing these people off to a, a, a primary care doctor and having them be responsible for getting them appropriate care becomes very inexpensive, and the way you're doing things um, is ridiculously expensive. So, again, the data points to what's happening to people, and through that, very quickly, you can appreciate the opportunities that there are to get people into a far higher quality operating system.
0: So really good nuggets in here. I'm sure people are gonna find this amazingly insightful. Clearly though, it isn't a one size fits all approach. So what are the couple of things you would recommend that every employer, maybe every consumer kind of think about as we move forward? So if you were advising an employer and you said, these are the three things you need to go figure out first, or these are the three things you need to go put into place. What would those things be?
1: Again, let me start by saying I'm not an attorney, and I am <laughs> not qualified to give any uh, advice for what companies should actually do from a uh, litigation standpoint or or a EEOC slash ADA slash HIPAA, all that crap. So I'm going to take that off the table and I'm going to say, in my mind, there are four four buckets that I put the people inside the corporations with whom I get the opportunity to work. One is low-risk people, who don't have any high-risk people in their environment. They don't have a husband with type 1 diabetes or a wife with rheumatoid arthritis or a child with cancer uh, or immunosuppressive medications uh, or chemotherapy. might be another better way to say that. So you've got low-risk, no-risk, or low-risk population they're around. You have low-risk people who have high-risk people that they're around. could be they have a parent that lives with them or one of the people that I just spoke about in those examples. So low-risk people with high-risk people in their environment. Then you have high-risk people. People over sixty-five, multiple conditions, et cetera, and then you have people who are dealing with COVID. Either they uh, have had it, they have it, they're quarantined. Uh, their work environment ha- has a high prevalence of it, so you've got that group. So there are four buckets that every employer has to figure out um, what's going on and how, do, how What am I going to do with these things? Because a lot of companies are saying, "Oh, we'll just send twenty-five or thirty or fifty percent of our workplace back," and um, and then. What you end up with in a situation like that is you end up with high risk people being around low risk people who are not following social distancing and other norms because the majority of people in the country with COVID right now are between 20 and 60 years old. They're not the older people. It's the younger people that are going out and they're going back to the bars on Friday night because we just had all these states open up and they're going back to restaurants and they're partying a little bit, and which I can't blame them, but they're they're not worried about getting COVID and dying. So they are actually the vectors that end up spreading that through the others. And just opening up a work environment with your young and old and high risk and low risk all in the same place, it's going to inevitably lead to people getting sick that didn't have to get sick and people being admitted or dying that didn't have to die. So number one is you've got to be able to understand the risk of your population. And I am not saying discriminate against people with high risk diseases. I'm not saying um, use your data to inform who you let back into the work environment. Those are dangerous things to do. But being informed by that data and doing what's best for your employees um, would definitely make a significant difference. So so that's the first thing. Then as far as the work environment itself, of course, um, this is less about data and more about um, the practicalities of getting people back to work and social distancing and hygiene. And in fact, as soon as we hang up here, I'm walking out of the plant that I'm sitting in right now uh, for this interview, and we're going to do a dry run for tomorrow's reinitiation of of work. And can we use the restrooms and social distance? Can people go on to break rooms and social distance? Is it possible to ingress and egress safely? Uh, and, And those type of things. So all of those things are the second big thing that we've got to really make sure we do well. And then the third thing, of course, is when somebody is identified with COVID or that have been and we, the way we're dividing it is you have people that are exposures which means that somebody in their environment had it but the chance of them being um, within six feet for ten minutes or more is very low so they are an exposure they don't have to quarantine but they need to be aware and they need to take precautions then you've got close contacts which is exactly what I said within six feet ten minutes could be accumulated doesn't have to be at one time and those people need to be treated differently and now of course the CDC came out with new guidelines in the very shortly you know it actually was yesterday but when people listen to this, it'll have probably been a couple of weeks or a month. And, uh, and now we have different ways of people returning to work that are exposures and that have had co- COVID-19. So you've got to have a plan on what you're going to do when people contact you, that they've got a problem, how you're going to figure out, do the contact tracing and help them, and then how you're going to bring them back to work. And that's what companies right now are very much need to focus on in order to create a safe work environment. After this, which is What I think your next question is the next big epidemic is going to be people with chronic diseases that didn't take care of themselves during COVID. They didn't get their prescriptions, they didn't go to the doctor, they didn't get their laboratory tests, they weren't able to maintain their lifestyle, um, or they, you know, sat and uh, worked on their computer all day from home, did not get activity or exercise. And, but they quote unquote feel fine because, you know, they, uh, they didn't get out. They didn't get exposed. They didn't get sick, but their hemoglobin A1C, they just went from 6.8 or 7.5 to 11.2. And so uh-huh. now they go out, they get exposed to somebody, they get COVID and whack. They're a disaster. And they're very severely far- harmed by that from a medical standpoint, not as a human being, but as a medical standpoint. And, um, and so I believe that the the crisis after the crisis or the pandemic is going to be the management of chronic diseases. And by the way, um, a lot of independent primary care doctors are going bankrupt right now. Um, I'm in mm-hmm. North Texas, and we've had a bunch of them close their doors because they didn't get the PPP loans, and they didn't have any way to withstand the COVID crisis. So they're out of work. They're out of business.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, I think. I think you're right I, I think and I hadn't even thought about but the people who with the crisis have not managed their chronic conditions well aren't in as good of a state of health as they maybe should be and then go out when we reopen and get exposed yeah um, so that that's a really important point that I don't know that many people are thinking or talking about right now
1: and for the companies that have their data, they have a way to communicate with people. They can be outreaching to all those folks and saying, hey, yes. did you get 90 days of your medicines? Do you need us help, helping <laughs> you figure out how to do that? Do you know? Yeah. Um, have you talked to a primary care doctor? Is your primary care doctor still open? Would you like to help us help you find another primary care doctor? Do we have we have a telemedicine benefit? Did you know about that? Here's the cost. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that need to be happening right now for people with chronic diseases, which, by the way, again, we're talking about 20 to 30% of most companies employ or you know people on the insurance plan for most companies cuz children is pretty rare that you need those things and there are a lot of younger people you know in their 20s 30s early 40s that don't have chronic conditions or in particular yep. multiple chronic conditions with multiple medicines so this is not do everything for everybody it's really about how does data informed intelligent design to uh, to plan benefits and to benefit structure so that you're able to act when you have an opportunity to make a huge difference in a person's life.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. makes a lot of sense. Well, this was a fascinating and enlightening conversation for me, and I'm sure it will be for the listeners as well. Um, before we let you go, Dr. Connard, anything you'll, you wanted to leave us with or anything we haven't covered that you'd like to address?
1: Well, I hope that what comes from this pandemic is people see a new way. They see a data-informed you know, population health way to support and add years to the life and life to the years of the people that are on their watch, that are their employees, are on their belt benefits insurance. And I hope that this will precipitate a transformation. I realize this is lofty, a, a, tra- a transformation from the actuarially based Clinically ignorant and misinformed, uh, you know, high deductible health plan, good luck with your life programs that really discriminate against those who don't have resources and don't have good health literacy, to one where um, the data can be used to. to match the right resources with the right people. And as they get supported and more knowledgeable and they're able to lean into living a more functional life, you spend less on the healthy people because they've got their telemedicine vendor they call when they have a problem or they know the right urgent care center to go to. They don't really need a long-term primary care relationship because they're not going to see them, but every two or three years. But we re rechannel those resources over to the people who do need to be in the primary care doctors three to six times a year, get their medicines filled, make sure they have the right care. And if, you do that you're just spending your money intelligently you're not spending more money in fact when you put high care high quality primary care in place for the top 20 25% of your population we actually see a total spend reduction in healthcare costs of anywhere from 7% to 20% so i am really going to be optimistic in the face of of reality right now, which is really stressed, um, that this leads to significant positive changes where um, data leads to wisdom and we actually test health benefit design against what we can find in the data to make sure that we've designed things that support people adding years of their life and life to their years.
0: That's a great aspiration for all of us to have.
1: (laughs) Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. And if I can ever uh, serve or help anybody um, that listens to this, my email is scott at com. Very easy. Um, and I would be honored for the opportunity to uh, support them.
0: Great. Well, again, thank you for your time and insights, Dr. Connard. And I am sure some of these folks will be reaching out to you.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for all that your company does in helping us utilize and work with data more and more effectively. Uh, Obviously, from our conversation, you know how important I believe that is.